Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he had been gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was his disciples who baptized and not Jesus. So Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, and he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman answered him, I am a Samaritan woman, and you are a Jew. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Then Jesus said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Then Jesus said, Those who drink this water will become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Then the woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I will not get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors used to worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus said, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when you will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Then the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain all of this. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Through him all things were made. In him was life, and 
and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. I just want to start by saying, wow, Ezekiel. Let's give him a round of applause. He did that awesome job. I have trouble remembering to take my shopping list, let alone memorising it. Um, Ezekiel has just memorised John 4, which is uh, the passage we're going to uh, refer to today. So if you've got your Bible, you might want to open that um, this morning. I want to say Happy Mother's Day. Um, I do want to request that uh, next year the preaching roster is actually a man preaching on Mother's Day and maybe a woman preaching on Father's Day. Can we do that? Thank you. (laughs) Um, But it is a privilege and an honour to be here with you. I want to say Happy Mother's Day to all our mums, our grandmums, our expectant mums and our mums in love, those women in our lives who uh, just take on that role of loving us. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Robin Hare. Um, I've been coming here to Northreach for a number of years now and I've got the joy of sharing today with you a bit more about Jesus is. And Jesus is so, oh, so many things. There are so many adjectives in scripture that we've learnt over the past weeks, months even, to describe Jesus is. As I prepared for this message, I came quite overwhelmed by just how many words and statements I could get out of the passage to finish off that sentence, Jesus is. Jesus is the eternal author of my story. Jesus is for us. Jesus is for everyone. Jesus is for the outsiders. Jesus is Christ, his Messiah, living water, truth, saviour. All of these words came to me as I prepared. The most amazing truth is also that Jesus knows us from before we were conceived. Now, I'm going to take a bit of um, a licence being the person on the podium today and share something that is very special to us. Um, Murray and I have found out in the last month that we're going to be grandparents for the first time. So as a mother, And I have to tell you, it's been a journey for me. Murray's been ready for years to be um, a granddad, but i it's been a journey for me. Um, I'm very excited now that I've actually been able to come to grips with the reality that I'm part of that generation. Um, There's also a journey that we have about what we're going to be called, but that's a whole other sermon, so I'll leave that another time, but feel free to ask us about that. Um, But... I share this mainly so that we can reflect on this passage from Psalm. Psalm 139 is a very long one, but there is some beautiful truth in these verses. Verses 13 to 18. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit them together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. It is amazing to think about. Your workmanship is marvellous and how well I know it. You were there while I was being formed in utter seclusion. You saw me before I was born and scheduled each day of my life before I began to breathe. Every day was recorded in your book. How precious it is, Lord, to realise 
that you are thinking about me constantly. I can't even count how many times a day your thoughts turn towards me and when I waken in the morning, you are still thinking of me. This is how wonderfully complex it is when we're being created in the womb, when God is knitting us together. Now, when I had my first scan 30 years ago, it was a bit of a black and white blob. This is our 12-week grandchild. The detail of the scans is amazing. But as I looked at that and as my son looked at that, he cried and said, how can people not see the human form in that? Such a joy to be able to, to rejoice in this at such an early stage. Now, Dan and Mel, the parents, have been on their own journey to get to this place, certainly not without its storms and valleys and droughts, but that's their story to tell, not mine. And as I thought through how to embrace all these thoughts and the awesomeness of one word or phrase that finishes Jesus is, as I reflected on my personal journey with Jesus, the journey of those I love, the journey of greats like Billy Graham, Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, and I, this is in honour of my husband, um, Chuck Swindoll is his hero, um, I came up with one phrase, Jesus is for me. Something that as a woman and as a mum I have travelled a long rough road to truly, truly believe it in my bones. Have you ever experienced a divine uh, appointment, that time when there is no way it could have just happened, no way you could make it happen, and a time when you've been in the right place at the right time with the right people and the outcome was right, in fact, maybe miraculous? These have not happened often in my life. In fact, I sometimes get jealous when I hear stories of people who've experienced them. I expect and accept that God uses people like Billy Graham and people of his calibre to impact the lives of others by some divine intervention. But we know stories of God intervening through the lives of ordinary people like you and me. The person you sit next to on the plane, the person in front of you at the Woolies queue, the visiting speaker at your work PD day, the doctor who will be treating you. Today we're going to unpack this story from chapter 4 of John, commonly known as the woman at the well or the Samaritan woman at the well or the woman at Jacob's well, depends what version of the Bible you have. It may be a familiar part of scripture for all of you. And today I hope we can engage and embrace just how this story not only demonstrates to us that Jesus is for me, he's for you, but also inspires us to respond just as this socially despicable woman did when she met Jesus. I'm just going to pray before we um, open God's word. Father God, I pray that you would open your word to us today. Lord, take my words and use them to reveal your story, reveal your message to each one of us wherever we're at today. Amen. Two strangers met beside a well on a hot afternoon in Samaria. One was a woman, the other was a man. We don't know the woman's name. The man was Jesus. 
their brief conversation changed her life. Although more than 2,000 years have passed since Jesus walked on the earth, his words remain incredibly relevant today, male or female, adult or child, young or old. Times change, but the human heart remains the same. We have the same hopes and fears and dreams and doubts, and we struggle with the same problems, uncontrolled anger, foolish choices, misplaced priorities, hypocrisy, guilt, indifference, frivolous curiosity, misguided ambition, limited faith, nagging doubt, convenient excuses, compulsive busyness, broken dreams and personal failure. At some point in my 56 years, I think I've had all of them. Sometimes we hear people talk about making the Bible relevant. This this amazes me that we have to actually have that conversation. It's a bit of an odd notion to me. All we have to do is make the Bible clear. Tell it like it is and it will be so relevant that we may not want to hear it because it makes us uncomfortable. The story of Jesus and the woman at the well may be familiar and as I've studied it this week, I've been struck by how simple and yet profound the event was and continues to be. A man meets a woman in a seemingly chance encounter. In a few brief moments, her life is changed forever. There are lessons here about racial prejudice, about religious hatred and dealing with moral outcasts. The story also conveys valuable truth about how to do evangelism, as well as what our response to salvation can look like. This is actually the longest recorded conversation anyone ever had with Jesus. It is longer than any recorded conversation with any of his disciples. I want you to picture the story as it unfolds, and we've watched it as Ezekiel read it to us. It was a hot day. The sun was beating down on the man's head. Sweat poured off his brow as he walked along the dusty road. It was probably mid to late July when the temperature can top out at 39 degrees. To make matters worse, he'd been travelling with his friends since sunrise and the sun was directly overhead. They were hurrying to make their way through this part of the country as quickly as possible. He came to a well with a rock ledge built up above the ground in the typical manner of the Middle East. It would have looked something similar to this. He sat on the lip and may have sighed and thought to himself how thirsty he was. Remember, Jesus was human. At precisely that moment, the woman came along. It wasn't the normal time. It was unusual for a woman to come to a well alone. But this woman was different. The Bible said she came from the tiny village of Sikar. We know basically where Sikar was. On this map, you'll be able to see. It was in Samaritan territory, nestled between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Sikar was built at the meeting of two trade routes, one that came up from Jerusalem on its way to Capernaum and one that came west from the Jericho region towards the Mediterranean Sea. So we can see that Sikar was located in a very strategic point. The well was about two kilometres outside the village, near the point where the two trade routes came together. Called Jacob's Well, after the patriarch who had first dug it some 2,000 years before this meeting. As the woman looks at Jesus and he at her, four invisible walls stand between them. Walls not unlike those we still experience today. 
There was a religious wall. There was a gender wall. There was a racial wall and a moral wall. Yet Jesus found a way through all of them. He found her and then she found him. We're going to look at a few, the journey of just that short interaction for that woman and Jesus. First, she made contact. John 4 verses 1 to 8, so beautifully recited by Ezekiel. Talk about Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptising and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptise. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go to Samaria on the way. Geography is important in understanding this story. I want to show you the map again. In Jesus' day, there were three regions stacked on top of each other. There was Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle, and Judea in the south. The easiest and quickest way to get to Galilee from Judea was to go due north right through Samaria. Verse 3 says, if we go back, verse 3 here says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why did he have to do that? The answer actually is he didn't. There was another route he could have taken and probably the route that was most commonly taken by those pious Jews who would go east, cross the Jordan River, enter the region of Perea, then go north, recross the Jordan River, and they would be in Galilee. This was out of the way, but it meant they would not have to go through Samaritan territory. Now, a little history also helps us here. The Jews and the Samaritan disliked each other. It all went back to 722 BC when the Assyrians conquered Israel and took the northern ten tribes into captivity. They brought in Gentiles from other areas to settle in that same region and eventually those Gentiles, with their pagan ways, intermarried with the Jews who'd been left behind. Over the generations, those people were called the Samaritans and they developed their own religion that was partly based on pagan ideas and partly based on Judaism. Eventually, they built their own temple at a place called Mount Gerizim and they developed their own language and their own version of the Old Testament, the first five books known as the Pentateuch for the Greeks and the Torah for the Hebrews. The Jews took, looked down on the Samaritans as religious and racial half-bred heretics. The animosity was very strong. If we think about the Bosnians and the Serbs, and the Palestinians and the Israelis. It was that sort of hatred. Now this brings us back to verse 3. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria when the Jews either didn't go there at all or passed through as quickly as they could? And here he stopped. The answer is simple and quite profound. Jesus went because he intended to meet this woman. He knew she would be coming to the well at precisely the moment he was sitting there weary from his journey. Cast your mind back to the reading from Psalm 139. He plots out our days. He knew she was going to be there. Nothing happens by chance in this story. Every detail is part of the outworking of God's will, and that is a hugely important point. The woman isn't looking for Jesus. All she wants is water. Get there, get water, get away. No eye contact, no interaction. But Jesus is looking for her. Contact. 
you have to go to Samaria if you want to reach the Samaritans. I want you to ask yourself today, where is your Samaria? He doesn't avoid Samaria and he doesn't hurry through it. Though she does not know it, this woman has a divine appointment with the Son of God. From this we can take a very important principle for evangelism. Reaching people for Christ is not always comfortable and may at times be difficult. But you have to go where people are and if you want to reach them at all, comfort is not the issue. The conversation between Jesus and this woman begins with a question, will you give me a drink? Jesus is tired and thirsty and she has the water he needs, but he has the water she needs. He was thirsty and he knew it. She was thirsty and didn't know it. The woman did not come to the well seeking Christ, but he came to the well seeking her. In his approach, we see the great heart of our Lord Jesus is without prejudice. It doesn't matter to him that others would not go to Samaria and others would not speak to this woman. He welcomed all and shuns none. John 4 is all about sovereign grace. He found her. The same is true for all of us. What happens in this chapter looks like a chance encounter to the world, but it was nothing of the kind. The time and the place for all the, and all the circumstances had been arranged by God well before because Jesus is for this woman. Jesus is for me and Jesus is for you. After the contact, we see the challenge. John 4, 9 to 15. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. There's a bit of a triple surprise in these, uh, in these verses. First, that a Jew would speak to a Samaritan. Second, that a man would speak to a woman um, he didn't know in public. And third, that a Jew would drink from a Samaritan's cup. When the woman saw Jesus, she knew he was a Jew, probably by how he dressed and potentially by his accent. She knew he was a stranger just passing through. And in the first century, it was most unheard of for a man to speak to a woman in public in these circumstances. And to ask for a drink was even more unusual. The rabbis actually taught that to, it was a sin to touch the utensil that a Samaritan had touched. When Jesus offers her living water, it seems he's being deliberately ambiguous because the phrase could also mean running water. He's trying to incite her curiosity and without making her suspicious. You came here for water. I've got water you never dreamed of before. He's leading her step by step 
to saving faith. First, he leads her to see her need, and then he reveals who he is, and he offers her something that could change her life. He's offering not to quench her thirst, but to banish it once and for all. This is what we in the teaching profession call the teaching moment. Here we see the simplicity of salvation. In verse 10, Jesus says, You would have asked and I would have given you living water. That's what salvation is. Think about that. Heaven itself is ours for the asking. Just ask for it, that's all. Jesus, um, just ask Jesus with our humble heart to save you because salvation is ours for the asking. And there is a reminder of the vanity of all earthly things. Anyone who drinks of the water of this world will thirst again. We all know what it is to be thirsty and we know that the body can live for weeks without food but only a few days without water. In verse 15, the woman even says, Give me this water. She didn't understand what he meant but she wanted what he had. What water are you thirsting for today? The worldly water of temptation is what we battle with every day. But Jesus offers us living water. The challenge has been issued. Now it's the confrontation. This is that part that not many of us like. Verse 4, 16 and 18. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, she replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man that you are living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. If we consider this conversation simply on the words spoken, it could appear that Jesus was being a tad insensitive. Why bring up anything from her past? Is Jesus trying to embarrass her? No. But his instruction to call her husband made her very uncomfortable. She doesn't want to go into detail, so she simply implies, I have no husband. Truth. She knew she was hiding the full truth, but she doesn't know how, doesn't know is that Jesus knows it too. And so he proceeds to reveal the rest of the story. Her five husbands and the man she's with now, not her husband. In a sense, this is the ultimate reality check for this woman. That would have been if I was her when I went, this man is different. How could a woman in that day have had five husbands? Even today, that would be unusual. Did they all die? That's unlikely. Had she been divorced five times? Possibly. Was there promiscuity involved? Most likely. Certainly, she's currently living in a sinful relationship with a man outside of marriage. The words of Jesus are a confrontation and yet it was the most loving thing he could have done. There is an important spiritual principle at work here. Without conviction of sin, there can be no conversion and that can be very uncomfortable. Revealing sin to another is an ultimate act of vulnerability. God sees behind the mask to the reality within. Until we come to grips with the sickness of sin and our own willful disobedience to God, we cannot be saved. Is Jesus being cruel here? Not at all. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus described his mission this way. 
It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Will the treatment be painful? No doubt sometimes it will be, but weighed against death, the pain is part of the healing process. Just as a doctor can sometimes seem to hurt in order to heal, even so the great physician of the soul must wound us with the truth about ourselves in order to heal the sickness of our sin. The words of Jesus reveal a deep-seated loneliness, a hole in her heart that no man can fill. Far from being irrelevant, these words of Jesus go to the core of her problem and of ours. No human relationship can satisfy. We are spiritual beings made for a relationship with God, by God. There's that God-shaped vacuum inside every human that no man or woman or relationship or experience can ever fill. We were made to know God, and until we know him through Jesus Christ, we are doomed to restlessness and despair. Let's pause to think about this. Does Jesus love this woman, this Samaritan woman? Yes, he does. He knows the truth of her past, the truth of her sins, and still offers her living water and eternal life. Here is the wonder of God's grace. Only someone who loves you can look at your past without blinking. Real love means knowing the truth about someone else and reaching out to them anyway. He's not ashamed of her past, but he cannot help her until she gets beyond the shame and admits the truth. She is almost, but not quite, saved. She is near the kingdom, but not quite in the door yet. Jesus laid bare what she thought she could keep hidden. That always makes sinners uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. What sin is holding you back? How vulnerable are you willing to be with Jesus today? We can all experience the wonder and the truth of God's grace. This woman took on an unusual female trait. She changed the subject. But this is when this happened, the conversion. Chapter 4, verses 19 to 26. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jew, you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here in Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. It's now pretty clear that this woman has met a most unusual man. Because he knows her past, she thinks he must be a prophet. She begins to engage in a debate. In that day, the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem and the Samaritans worshipped at Mount Gerizim. 
So she wants to know which mountain's the right one to worship. Jesus doesn't bother debating with her. He simply tells her that a time is coming when geography won't matter. What God wants are people who worship him in spirit and in truth. And he doesn't condemn her faulty thinking or say, you're stupid to worship on that mountain. That wouldn't do any good and would probably make her angry and end the conversation. One of the great truths to come out of this story is that God is greater than geography, he's greater than race, class, gender and religion. True worship is not about where or how or even when. True worship is not about the songs and the prayers. It's about who you are, who I am, and who God is. God wants worship that is based on truth and a wholehearted personal commitment to him. The worship God accepts must be based on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and offered to him from a humble heart of faith. If what God wants is spirit and truth, anyone can qualify. Salvation is not limited to the Jews. The good news is meant for everyone. This is God's equal access provision. Salvation is not about going to the right mountain. It's about going to Jesus for living water. And anyone can do that anywhere at any time. Slowly, the truth is dawning on this woman. She has heard that the Messiah will someday come to, the, to earth. Imagine her surprise when Jesus says, I am the Messiah. It's actually quite an intriguing statement from, from Jesus. Here he plainly claims to be the Messiah and he does it in a unique way. We've already studied that Jesus is I am. In Greek, it would have read something like this, the one who speaks to you, I am made me think of Yoda. You know how he speaks in reverse? The one who speaks to you, I am. But I am was the name by which God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus. Jesus here is claiming identity with God. No doubt this woman was blown away. She came for some water in the middle of the day. She ends up meeting the water of life face to face. Come to I am, worshipping in truth and spirit, Heart, spirit, head, truth. Finally, the changed life. Chapter 4, verses 27 to 30. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Between verses 26 and 27, the woman was converted. How do we know? Because she leaves her water pot and goes to tell the others in town. She ran. As I read these verses, verses, I'm struck by how little the woman understands. All she says is, he knows me. That's not exactly the Apostles' Creed. And she claims, I think he's the Messiah. That's not exactly the four spiritual laws. She doesn't have a theology degree. In fact, she's not a very likely witness. But most of us would want our new converts a little bit better trained to do the discipleship course. 
But God uses those who are willing to be used. She ran to her people. Her invitation doesn't say, you must be born again. It simply says, come and see. Her invitation is sincere, non-threatening and open to everyone. When Jesus gives living water, we want to share it with someone else. Joy and action. In Papua New Guinea, there's a group of people called the Asaro Mudmen tribe. I've learnt about them just in this last week. They have a great saying that describes this woman's reaction to the living water, Messiah, Jesus. It says this, Knowledge is only rumour until it lives in the bones. We come to the end of the story in verses 39 to 42. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the saviour of the world. And here is the wonderful lesson of the power of the gospel. One woman with inadequate knowledge and just a mustard seed of faith brings her whole town to Jesus. Talk about evangelism explosion. This is it. She never attended any classes or read any books. She met Jesus. He transformed her life and she couldn't stop talking about it. If you know you are a sinner and you are willing to trust Christ as your saviour, you can be saved. There's plenty of time to fill in the rest of the details later. A little phrase at the end of verse 42 tells us that the hated Samaritans figured out something the Jews never quite got right. They understood that Jesus was indeed the saviour of the world. They they heard this woman's testimony, then they heard Jesus, then they believed. I'd like to close with a crucial phrase in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Ponder those three little words, if you knew. If you knew who I was, you would ask and I would give you eternal life. I want to ask you this morning, do you know who he is? If so, will you ask for that living water? If you want to go to heaven, all you have to do is ask. That's how simple salvation is. It's like asking for a refreshing, cool drink, clear water. No one is too sinful to be saved. No one is so lost that the Lord can't find him. No one can be saved without facing sinful past. No one who faces his sinful past will be turned away by Jesus. No one who meets Jesus will ever, ever be the same again. Jesus is ready to give us living water. It's free for the asking. Are we ready to receive it? What a story this woman and Jesus shared. Are you ready to share the story? Jesus is saviour. Jesus is for me. Jesus is for you. Jesus is for us. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the clear message through your word of your plan for each of us. May we meet you in those divine places. Father, we accept the challenge to confess the sin that binds us, knowing that you know us so intimately that nothing is hidden from you. Lord, today may we choose your living water freely offered by your grace. May we live a changed life, knowing truth down to our bones that is so obvious to those that we do life with. May we acknowledge you as Lord and Saviour today. For me, for all of us, because you know us, you seek us, you love us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.